You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. We can hardly wait for you to hear this interview with musician, producer, songwriter, and leader of the legendary Nashville Cats. This is the first-hand story of Jim Vest, told to J.C. and me from his easy chair in his living room just outside of Nashville. He even let me sit at his big desk in his office, lined with gold records. And let me tell you something, he is a charmer who has lived a colorful life at the center of it all in Music City. But his rise took time because he had to earn his stripes and learn that Nashville runs in circles. And you'll hear him explain what that means in this interview, along with JC's Music City Mentor segment, about the Nashville number system, right after our interview with Jim. The fact is, Jim Vest is one of the greatest steel guitarists in the world. He's also the recipient of the Super Picker Award, which is given only to musicians who have played on million-selling records. He is so good at what he does, Paul McCartney came to hear him play. And an unknown artist named Kenny Chesney called him Jimbo, and used to sing demos for him. But make no mistake about it, Jim Vest came from humble beginnings. Somebody from $11 house in Alabama has cut some of the biggest records in the world, and if that can happen for me, it can happen for you. Here's Jim with a snapshot of his early life and his introduction to the steel guitar. Well, my dad played... Back in 41, when I was first born, he had a radio show every Saturday, and he was so happy playing and singing by himself. And then he got his greetings and had to go to war. And when he got out, there was no work. So we moved to Knoxville from there to Louisville, Kentucky. Dad come home one night, and he liked to play. He had a beautiful ES-175 Gibson. He said, son, how would you like to play steel guitar? I said, I don't know. I said, what is that? Next thing you know, here's his howdy doody was on stage, you know, on TV, and Pee Wee King and his Golden West Cowboys. And so the next night they were on, he sent me down, and he said, that's what a steel guitar is, and I think you could play one. He said, I think you got talent. So they sent me to school, 50 cents a lesson a week, and that was big money back then. How old were you? I was about eight years old. Steel guitar is such a complicated instrument to play. Well, you got to think back now. This is way before pedals. There were no pedals back then. So my coordination is just unreal. I want to take you back to 1969 when you moved to Nashville. I was just in the city yesterday taking pictures on the pedestrian bridge. Yeah. And what a view it was. It was nothing like that in 1969 when you got here. You know, the tallest building was the LNC Tower. That was the tallest. Everything else was eight or ten stories. And you know who owned a big piece of that from the Grand Ole Opry? Who? Roy Acuff. Wow. Yes, sir. So when you first got to the city of Nashville, and you started making your way as a musician. Can you tell our listeners what that was like? What did it take to get people to know who you were, to get asked to play? What were the lessons you learned early in your career? To understand that, we'd have to back up 
1962 when I went to work with Pee Wee King, who was a member of the Grand Ole Opry, and he helped bring people like Ernest Hubb and Minnie Pearl and a lot of them to the Opry. When I went to work with Pee Wee, it was just a whole new world for me. We made $25 a night and never wanted for nothing. It was fun. It was educational. Red Stewart was a genius. And he and Pee Wee naturally wrote the Tennessee Waltz and did all kind of movies and everything together. And we'd all travel together. And it was just so much fun, you know. George Jones and I were buddies when he had a burr haircut. <laughs> I got pictures in this book of me and Waylon together before either one of us had a beard. And everybody's just getting started, getting their feet wet. So by the time I had nine years of that and I moved to Nashville, I was still working for David Houston, almost persuaded was his record, big one. Everybody pretty well I knew. And they knew of me and they knew how I played. You know what's interesting when you say, I knew everybody, they knew about me, they knew how I played. Isn't it always about relationships? Everything down here moves in circles. You've got all these guys with so much power, just like my circle that I was in. Hank Cochran was sitting there, you know, at the, at the head of that circle. And we produced people like Dean Dillon. Kenny Chesney used to do our demos. You know, what does he get? Uh, $200,000, $300,000 a show, maybe a half a million. Kenny Chesney would walk right into your studio and do demos for you? Oh, hell yeah. If I do do it, I can play you. Really? Yeah, what was it like when you met him? Did you know, boom, this kid's got talent? He was just somebody who was wanting to be friends with Jim Vest because he knew who Jim was at that time. And, you know, and of course, after he hit his stride he didn't forget me one of the people that wrote with him that he loves dearly now is david lowe they wrote the tin man together one of his biggest early records and me and david be out riding around just writing a little bit together and the phone would ring and, and they would say yeah who is it and, and there was his chassis and he said man what are you doing i'm riding around on the boat here well just a little ways off my island and he said i got thinking about you so let me fly you down and let's write let's do some things like that and he said i can't do it man he said i'm riding around with jim vest right now we're trying to write a damn song hey jimbo how you doing same old kenny tell me about the nashville cats and i wanted to do sessions really bad now everybody knew me and knew me for a player and working the road they didn't know me in session work, and that's a sacred another piece of that circle. I'm making $25 a song or something, but it's still giving me experience. I'm not getting no money, and I'm not uh, making my bills, which seem like they doubled when I come to uh, live here. So I built me a dune buggy, and I sold that damn thing, and that gave me a little time when there was money I got out of that. And Billy Walker called, and Billy said, Jim said, um, you know, I begged you for years to come with me. He said, I got four pieces that's awful good. He said, you'd just be the crowning glory if you'd go with us and work. I said, hell yeah, I'm starving to death. Let's go. So we got out there on the road, and after about four or five weeks, he come up and fired the whole band except me. He said, we, we don't need all this expense, Jim. said, I'm going to double your salary, and we're just going to take off the Cadillac. And I said, uh-huh. Well, after about a month, uh, you know, working, trying to get these non-playing musicians to try to play Billy Walker stuff. They don't know charts. They don't know nothing. So long story made short, the boys that had quit had went by Printer's Alley at the Western Room, talked to the guy, and he's like, I don't know, guys. I don't know about you know about this country musical verse. It's supposed to be country, but Joel Bradenberg is the one who had the, uh, the, the businesses. 
He had three clubs in her in that alley and a restaurant. And he said, well, look, we might could get this other guy to come with us and told him about me and about all the people that I'd worked with, which Joel wasn't no dummy. He knows the Opry's only three blocks away. And he said, he knows all them people? I said, yeah, well, you can get him. I said, I'll give you a two-week try. And they called me, and I said, yeah, I'll give my notice right now. Tell him we, we'll hit it in two weeks. Well, we'd already been playing together, and they were good players. So I gave my notice, and I come in there, and we went to work. We didn't work three or four months until we had the place packed. And now every time you look out there in front of them, there sits George Jones, there sits Willie Nelson, and here comes Waylon busting through the door, you know, ready to party. And half or all of the, the uh, TV show, uh, he all, they're hanging out with us, all of them, you know. And I've been from Tom Jones on down. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, four or five months into it, this guy come in from Vegas, and he said, man, he said, what a tight band. I said, thank you, man. He said, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so, and I book so-and-so, so-and-so. And he said, uh, what are y'all making? And I told him, you know, we're making this or that. I'll triple that. And he said, come out for two or three weeks. I said, not until I talk to my boss. So I went and talked to Joel, and Joel said, go if you want to, but you'll never work for me again. I said, there's other places to work. He said, but by God, I want you right here. And screw what they got for you. He said, this is steady all year round. And perks. I said, all right. So I told him, I said, we ain't going. Well, he eased around, then tried it again with the bass player. And the bass player decided, well, he'd like to go. I'm going to take off and go, Jim. I said, well, you know, I'm not your leader. You just go if you want to go. We don't have a damn leader. Ain't nobody being paid for a leader. 150 bucks a week back then. But it was good pay. Wasn't passing no damn tip jar to make a living. So off he went. I got my brother to come down and play with me, and he was a monster player now. He come down and got up on the stage, and I mean clean and sharp and young. And old Joel come in there, and he said, man, he said, what? And I told him, I said, he went out to Vegas and doing his thing. He'll be back in two weeks. He said, not here, he won't. Well, anyway, two weeks went by so damn fast. Wasn't funny. We just got up on the stage on a Monday night. And uh, I had already sent my brother back home, and the bass player that we had, I hate to call his name, was upon the stage, and Joel walked in. And he said, hey, what the hell are you doing on my stage? I like to die. <laughs> you know, and he said, get off, and I mean now. And the boy just stood there. He said, I said, now, and the guy that owned the club was 500 pounds and at least six foot five or six. Great big old boy. So he, in front of the whole crowd, had to tear his stuff down. And meanwhile, I'm looking around because there's always a bunch of musicians in the club and seeing if I can't find me one that Mike could do what we're doing. So you had to find someone from the audience to jump in and play bass for you that night? And did. And then that night, or just as soon as I got on the next break, I called Louisville and told my brother, I said, you get your butt back down here and I mean be here tomorrow by noon. How did you stay relevant with the group over all that time? I said, here's how it's going to be, boys. There's a brand new record on the airways out there right now, and they're singing about us. Us. And I said, it's the loving spoonful, and they're singing a song called Nashville Cats, Play Clean. And I said, that's us. Believe it, and that's what you are from now on. And that was the deal. So through the years, I'd lose 
this musician and I'd get just a little better one. I never looked for the greatest musician in town because they were always too self-centered, too easy to take a night off because they thought they were somebody better than what they were. So I took me a just a little bit above average great player. And then when he went through Jim Vest schooling in the Nashville Cats. Jim Vest schooling? <laughs> he fit like a glove. When the ball was passed, he was in the right spot to catch it easy. And somebody made a mistake, and I just looked up at him. That was all I had to do because I knew he was staring at a woman or something was up. He wasn't paying attention to what he does. But I had probably one of the first female drummers that was playing on stage in, in my band. I had a saxophone in a country music band, and the, the, we played parts together. It was unreal. And of course, I always had other people constantly coming, sitting in with us, everybody. Every little old girl singer, you know, that was trying to make it. And then they did make it like Lori Morgan. When you bring musicians together and that magic happens. Yeah. It's almost like you have to catch it in a bottle sometimes, isn't it? I found that magic on stage quite a few times with my band when everybody all of a sudden would settle down to play a really great song with great lyrics and great song. Maybe it was a good Mel Street song or a George Jones song. But we played it as good, if not better, than the record. And we'd look at one another, and every one of us just freezing to death. You just can't believe that last three minutes had just happened. And you know, and it don't happen that often. Take this job and shove it. You know, what was supposed to be the title of that album was From Cotton to Satin that me and David Chamberlain wrote and Billy Sherrill from the front said, that's going to be our first single. That's the name of the album. And here come What's-His-Face running in the door at the last minute. Nasty-looking old leather jacket and chains are hanging all over it. Billy, you got to listen to this song. Billy took time to go upstairs, come back down. He said, boys, he said, you know what? Let's, let's lay this down. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. And I said, oh, man, that's a piece of, you know what I'm thinking. That ain't nothing like the song I've got written. And the third time we played that damn thing, it was just the magic fell out all over the room. And I looked at Paycheck, close as you are. And when we locked eyes, I knew I didn't have no A-side single. I didn't have the title of the damn album. But my song took a ride for $15 million anyway. What's your favorite all-time recording session and who was it with you know i had three wonderful times the, when they did set him up joe do you remember that song and i walked in the studio that day and he said jim he said I, I i want you to i'm not happy with this turnaround he said can you play twin to what that guitar did i said yeah i said give me a minute and i found it and i played it and he said i'm sorry I wasted time like that he said, that's not it. He, oh, he said, put some of them big Jim Vest fat cords around it. You know, I always done some bottom end stuff. It was real big and heavy, and that ain't it. And he went, uh, we had to, we were out west end, and it was a big old mansion from the 1860s or something next door. And we were in a, 
the carriage house, but we had a million dollars worth of equipment. And Bob Montgomery's producing, he's the head of CBS. And I didn't have no diabetes much then, boy, he'd bring us out some sweet tea. But that's what he did. He said, I'm going to get us a jug of sweet tea, and you work me up an intro, clean that front. Let Vest have it. He got back. I said, all right, I've got something worked up. I said, let me play it for you. No, I don't want to hear it until until it goes on. He said, have you got him? You got him hot? You ready? The engineer said, I got him, man. He turned the damn thing on, and I had to play my damn intro. So I did. They got a vintage Victrola 1951 Full of my favorite records that I grew up on They got old Hank and Lefty and there's D24 Set them up, Joe, and play walking the floor Set them up, Joe, and play walking the floor I'm gonna spend the night like every night before Playing E.T. and I'll play him some more I gotta have a shot of them old troubadours Yeah, set them up, Joe, and play walking the floor Set them up, Joe, and play walking the floor. And as soon as he got through with it, I said, hey, man, back that up, and I'll give it to you even better than what that was. You know, and he said, you'll never play that intro again. Never on this record. He said, for something you want to change, do it on turnaround. Well, that was a moment. And then this, take this job and shove it. Everybody in that room we just played at it twice, and then all of a sudden on the third time, it's just, you know, we just let it go. Just let it go. I've got some blue notes where I just almost hit the damn thing. Where I was going, and you don't hear that out of me, but it worked. And then I was sitting there one day, and we was doing, remember Charlie Rich? Mm-hmm. Was it Silver Fox? Is that what they called that old boy? And, uh, and he was a great guy. And we had just done his uh, last four songs for his album. And I played on this song called Rolling with the Flow. Once was a thought inside my head. Before I reached 30, I'd be dead. But somehow on and on. Would change my mind I'd straighten up And do just fine Ah, but I still love rock and roll I keep on rolling with the flow I was just sitting there There was a lot of times Whenever I'd let everybody else get their stuff And then I'd load my stuff in my van And I'd come back in And sit down beside Billy Sherrill and I'd listen, and I'd watch, elbow to elbow, and he'd look at me, and he's, do you like that, didn't you? I said, yeah. He said, then we'll keep it. And told me, he said, you want my job two or three times? I said, no, I just want one just like it, and I'll be happy. So he said, would you do me a favor? He said, you played some really nice steel on that last song. He said, but that's a, 
it's needing something, Jim. It's needing something. And he said, I need a lick. Something real simple. All right, Billy. I said, hang on. So he's sitting out there beside me in the studio, and he pointed to the engineer through the glass. And he said, when we get, once was a thought inside my head, lick. But that's another one of those moments. And he got through. He said, well, you played on another number one record. And it sure was. Let me ask you a question about radio. Because radio is one of those mediums where, as a musician, when you hear your song on the radio for the first time, how did that feel? David Chamberlain, who's had two or three number one George Strait hits, is my neighbor up here about three miles, and I started him. He kept hanging out, and I don't give a damn where I went, if it was by God drank some liquor or, or, or smoke a joint or whatever the hell I wanted to do. I looked around, and there's David. <laughs> yeah, think about this here title, Jimbo. And I said, uh-huh. And I'd go to another club, and I'd be talking to somebody, and I'd look around, and, and I'm nose to nose with David. I got another one. What about this? So I told him one day, I said, David, I said, let's, let's me and you write for, let's say, six months instead of six weeks. And if we don't have something that's really good, don't ever tell me a title the rest of my life. But I ain't mad at you. I want you to come back and sing because you sang stuff like Ray Price, and I love to play that. So he come out to the house, and we sat down that night, and we wrote a thing called uh, I'm Not Easy, I'm a Lady. And Billy Joe Spears cut it, and we had our top ten song, the first damn thing. So we were married from there on. Next weekend, we rode from cotton to satin. So we've had a lot of good girl hits. Uh, Tammy Wynette, your sweet lies just turned down my sheets again. What's it like to hear those songs on the radio? The first time you hear it, you just want to just reach over there and say, play it again and turn something backwards. Now we can. This is such a huge body of work for you as a musician, 
as a producer, as a songwriter. Jim, what are you most proud of? I would say my family and my name. We've kept a, a good name in this town, and, you know, that's hard to do, especially, you know, being in the middle of all the things I've been in the middle of. My family and God and, and, and the music that I played, Paul McCartney come to see me one night. Just as I got off the bandstand, I'm walking out behind the bar, and the bartender just giggled. He said, well, you've seen them all, buddy. And he said, you ain't going to guess who's up there now. I said, hell, it don't matter. I said, who the hell is it? He said, Paul McCartney and his wife and another couple. And I went up and I said, buddy, I said, is that you, Mr. McCarthy? He said, yeah, it ain't no mistress. My name's Paul. And he said, man, I've sat here and listened to your band. He said, what a bond. He didn't say band. He said, bond. What's a bond? What a bond you have. He said, four pieces. I got four pieces, too. (laughs) And we sat there and talked my whole break away. And just as he got ready to leave, he said, I'm going to run up and I'm going to see Bootsy. Because Boots Randolph was two doors up, saxophone. And I'll be back. And I thought, uh-huh, that's all well and good, Ben. I see you. And I ain't never going to see him again in my life. And we just started our last set and looked up. Here comes the four coats again. The four fur coats. Yeah. And they went, oh, they had to be thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a coat. You've never seen such fur. Just, it just wiggled and moved as they walked. Well, of course, you've seen his catalog. <laughs> 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 the book is called Jim Vest and the magic of a steel guitar. Let's imagine, and Barry Barnes is the editor, Helen Vest, your wife of 60 years, is the creative consultant. Let's say that your book lands in the hands of a young kid who's trying to make it in Nashville. What's the message in this book for musicians? The message in that book is that somebody from a $11 house in Alabama has cut some of the biggest records in the world. And if that can happen for me, it can happen for you. And look at the people that have poured into me as a vessel, the knowledge and their love and friendship. And that's just a big old wave that you're riding. And you just, you learn how to stay up on top of that wave. And you learn that you got there because you had help. I listen to your stories, Jim. <laughs> and... I listen to your sense of humor, but also how hard you've worked and how many people you said poured themselves into you and you poured yourself into them. My final question. The name of the show is Country Music Success Stories. What does it take to be a success story in country music? My first boss man, Pee Wee, he told me one thing that I've never forgotten. He said, Jim, start at the top. He said, those old boys at the top are just as good a guys and easy to talk to as they are at the bottom. So the ones at the bottom, they don't want to help you because they're hungry. And another thing I can say to people out there, yes, learn from all the people that you want to learn from. Take in your heart, your mind, what they're doing. Feel that. And then once you store that along with another 50 acts or people that you really love too, now what's going to come out of you should be you. It'll be a mixture. It will be flavored and colored different. But all that's really going to be you. That's what you've learned. And that's what you're going to draw from. Be yourself. And when you find yourself, all of that is so easy. It's like falling off a log. And you give it the best shot that you've got, but you've got a good shot waiting on it. 
and you don't even know where it's at inside you. But you reach down and you say, I got to have it. And it's usually there if you've done your time. Practice hard. Play in tune. Always walk in with a smile and say, boys, what are we doing today? Can't wait. Jim Vest, I want to say thank you so much for being this week's guest on Country Music Success Stories. Congratulations on an incredible career that continues to unfold and certainly on your book, Jim Vest and the Magic of a Steel Guitar. Thank you so much. Thank you, honey. It's candy. Sweet. Thank you. Hi, this is J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. Jim Vest's story is one for the books, a man whose entire career has been filled with playing music and doing the things that he loves the most. If you're an aspiring musician listening to this podcast, chances are you are hoping for a career just like Jim's. Nashville is extra special because in a town like this, you really can make a living playing an instrument. Although no two career paths are the same in country music, today I want to touch on three different ways that you can make income as a professional musician. Number one, being a live musician. If you score a gig with a big artist or small, you'll be making money. Musicians get compensated for their performances on the road with an artist and oftentimes are giving a small per diem, which is an allowance for food or other needs while traveling on tour. Don't get too excited. Daily per diem is often small and can range between $10 and $30 per day. If you're a member of the Musicians Union, you'll be paid according to union scale when on the road, so I encourage you to check out the Nashville Musicians Association online. Some of the larger A-list artists oftentimes will put their band on a salary. This means they have to be available at any time, any day to jump on the road and perform. Not a bad way to make a living, if I do say so. In 2021, the average live musician's salary in Nashville ranged between $25,000 to around $55,000. The top 10% made around $85,000 annually. Number two, being a studio musician. Another way to make a living is by playing on demos, singles, and albums in the studio. You'll often find that these musicians head into the studio in the morning and will be there recording back-to-back songs all day long. You might be surprised to know that they rarely get the music before they show up. Singers and songwriters will walk into the studio with their demos. The band leader will chart out the song in real time and hand the musician a chart with numbers on it. This is called the Nashville Number System, and you should absolutely look this up online. It's an essential part of being a studio musician to learn how to read these number charts. The musicians will often be given union scale for the day and will not receive any further compensation, even if the song becomes a hit. The annual salary for a studio musician in Nashville in 2021 was just around $46,000. Finally, you can teach. Teaching younger, aspiring musicians is very admirable, and it's a great way to make a living in music. Get so good at your instrument that you have knowledge to share. You can either decide to teach privately, on your own, or through a school. If you want to go the extra mile and make a full career out of it, you can even go get your degree in music education and fill your life up with music in the classroom. Whatever you decide to do, if music is your life, there is always a way to make it your living. More wisdom you can use from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. If you liked Country Music Success Stories, we hope you will spread the word about our podcast. 
And please leave a review of our show. Follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. We've got a TikTok handle. It is Candy and JC. Our series is now available on the Countryline app, so please download it. JC Don Valeris is gathering up all the information you need to make it in country music. That's her specialty, and she's an expert at it. Check out Music City Mentor on YouTube. Our vlogs are there as well, and very entertaining. It's all about our life on the road. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.